And good morning, everyone. Welcome here, along with Lynette. Uh, If you're new, special welcome. My name is Matt. This next part of our service, our gathering time, we will be uh, looking into the Bible. It's kind of what we do for the for the major portion of our time together. Uh, we're going to be in the book of 1 Timothy again, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, we'll have the verses on the screen. And I'd like to pray for us uh, before we dive in. So uh, join with me if you would. Uh, Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you, God, that uh, we, we come together not to hear the wisdom of human beings, but to hear the wisdom of God. And Lord, uh, I pray that would happen. In fact, Lord, we, we know that uh, for that to really happen, we, we need you to move amongst us. Uh, Lord, we are not uh, bright enough or wise enough in, in of ourselves to, to understand you truly. And so I pray, please, Lord, that you would, you would help us to do that. I pray you'd help me uh, to be faithful. Uh, I pray especially, Lord, for this topic, Lord, that we're going to I give our attention to. It's a weighty topic. Uh, God, I pray that you would uh, help us uh, to not only see the, the truth of Scripture as it applies to it, but also to see you more through it. So, so please bless our time. Please keep us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, as I <clears throat> just prayed, the topic that we're going to uh, give our attention to is a, a weighty topic. Uh, it, is, it, is a, it is a thing in human history that has caused great um, hurt and pain and destruction the world over. It's something that has uh, brought great um, detriment to the races of the world, uh, individuals, cultures, societies. Uh, it's an evil in this world that despite worldwide efforts to eradicate it, it still persists uh, to this day. And it's an evil uh, that is especially problematic for the church uh, because of our history with it and because of passages like we're going to see uh, today. The words of scripture that make it even more difficult to understand uh, how we should approach this this topic. Uh, So in case you have not yet read ahead, the topic this morning is slavery. Uh, The title of the sermon is Slavery and the Gospel. And our text, as we're going to see in a moment, is, is problematic because on first reading, it doesn't seem to say what we think it should say. What anyone with, with a, a moral uh, compass in their head thinks should be said about this weighty topic. So before we get any further, let me just read. We have two, just two verses this morning, beginning of chapter 6. Let me read them, and then we'll kind of go forward uh, and see what God has for us. So here's, here's again Paul writing. This is a letter from Paul to Timothy uh, to the church in Ephesus, and he says this. He says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants... That word could be translated slaves. Regard their own master as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must, be, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. The last few lines. Teach and urge these things. So you can see why this is, this is difficult. Right? In fact, one of the biggest criticisms of Christianity from those outside the church tends to be slavery. People hear verses like this, and they say, look, how do you expect me to, to take this book seriously if this is what it says about slavery? And to make matters worse, uh, throughout history, there are slave owners who have, who have used the Bible to encourage and, and to kind of regulate slavery. For example, uh, there's a Puritan pastor uh, named Cotton Mather, who was a slave owner, and he wrote a book in 1693 called Rules for the Society of Negroes. 
based on a survey of biblical texts. So we take principles like this one in Scripture and say, this is how we should, we should treat our slaves. This is how we should, should rule over them. In fact, uh, even worse, there are a number of heroes of the faith, uh, men who, who've contributed a lot theologically to the church, men like Jonathan Edwards, men like George Whitfield, who actually owned slaves. Which is why for many people, many people would say, look, Christianity is a non-starter for me. Look, if, if the Bible can't even get this right, how do you expect me to pattern my whole life after the word of God? And in fact, that's, that's a fair criticism if it's true. If the Bible can't even get slavery right, why should we see it as a source of moral authority? As the church, for those of us who are here this morning would say, no, I am a follower of Jesus. I do actually believe this. We, we need to be able to respond well. We need to be able to respond well on topics as weighty and morally clear as slavery. And the truth is that we can. We can respond well. Part of that response is simply to admit the wrongs of the past. Christians and Christian churches have been on the wrong side of slavery. Philip Reichen uh, rightly laments, Would that it were not so, but it is so. The church of Jesus Christ bears part of the guilt for the sins of slavery in human history. That guilt cannot be ignored. It can only be confessed and forgiven on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. Like, like any sin in our past, the only way to deal with it is to admit it, to confess it, and then to repent of it and turn in the other direction. The church needs to do that when it comes to slavery. But the other part of the church's response, of our, our response, is to correctly understand what the Bible actually says about slavery. Just because there are Christians or Christian churches on the wrong side of it doesn't mean that the Bible is. In fact, what we're, we're going to see this morning is that the Bible's answer, God's answer to slavery, means true justice, genuine compassion, and lasting freedom. It is the answer that every slave and every slave owner needs to hear. So that's going to be our goal this morning. That's kind of our, our, our big picture goal. The first two-thirds of the sermon is going to be big picture. What does the Bible say about slavery? And then the last third is going to be looking at our text for this morning. Because you can only really make sense of what Paul is writing in 1 Timothy if you understand the big picture of what God says about slavery and especially how the gospel impacts it. So three questions are going to guide our time. Here's the first one. What do we mean by slavery? Uh, this may seem like an obvious question with an obvious answer, but in fact, you can't rightly speak of slavery in human history. You need to speak of slaveries. There are different types. The one that springs to mind, to our minds, uh, immediately, is the transatlantic slave trade, right? Where the, mostly Europeans traveled to Africa and enslaved people, captured them, kidnapped them, put them in ships, treated them like cargo and like cattle, use their power to, to capture another person and to use them for their own purposes. Between the 1600s and 1800s and beyond, this, this was a practice in the, the Northern Hemisphere especially. In our day, slavery is very much like this. If you think about the slavery that's going on that, that we see that still persists in the world, sex trafficking, child trafficking, still in many countries there are legit slaves where people are confined where they're, they're forced to do whatever the master wants them to do, they're used. What you need to understand is that the Bible has always condemned this kind of slavery, 
right from the beginning, the word of God has said this is contrary to what God says is right and should be punished. Let me, let me show you. Here's Exodus 21.16. So wait the beginning of the Bible. It says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. You see the severity of the punishment there. Very clear. This, this, is, this is not what God says should happen. And in fact, God is actively telling those in charge to, to work against this, to bring consequences to those who do this kind of thing. And notice also, it's not just the one who does the enslaving, it's anyone down the line who goes to a market, buys a slave there, any of that is contrary to the word of God. Look again at uh, Deuteronomy 24, verse 7. It says, If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So if, if you're wondering, if someone you're talking to is wondering, what does the Bible say about slavery? It, it says it's evil. It says there's no place in human society. Again, Philip Reichen commenting says, says this. This means that the whole Western institution of slavery, which began with the capture of African slaves and included the death passage to the Americas, directly violated the law of God. This is the answer that we should expect from one who is morally right, from God himself. This is not the way things should be. This is the answer that, that helps us to, to see those Christians claiming to be Christians and slave owners in the right light. They, they're put to shame by the word of God. It's also an answer that helps us to understand why so many Christians worked hard to abolish slavery. Right? Uh, notably, William Wilberforce, John Newton, lobbied the British Parliament for years to abolish slavery, finally succeeding in 1807, just before Newton's death. That This is a very clear teaching of Scripture, and yet, and yet there's difficulties, right? Because those verses, very clear, right? Slavery is wrong, but then the verse we just read, remember? Let's look again, verse 1. There, Paul says to the slaves, regard your own masters as worthy of all honor. How do you, how do you square that circle? How do you look at some verses that say it's totally wrong, other verses that seem to be saying, well, it's okay, and here's how you should do it properly. See, this is where we need to understand the different types of slaveries more clearly. Uh, there's a historian, his name's Thomas E.J. Weideman. He makes a distinction uh, between uh, two main different types of slavery. The first he calls closed slavery. He says this kind of slavery is a mechanism for the permanent exclusion of certain individuals from political and economic privileges. This is the plantation kind of slavery, where, where the whole mindset of the, of the plantation owner is this, this person, this black slave, this is, this is not a person. This is something for me to use. His goal is that as far as he's concerned, as long as he's empowered, that man will be in slavery and his children and their children. It is a permanent situation. One that he uses all his power to put down another human being because of race or whatever the reason so he can take from him. That's the closed form of slavery. It's to be a permanent situation and the Bible again says that this is wrong. This is evil. Should not be practiced anywhere in the world in any human society. But there's another kind of slavery that he points to in history. He calls it open slavery. Open slavery, he says, in that case, service as a slave is not a state to which a person is permanently or naturally assigned. It's a form of economic support. By that he means it's not about class, it's not about gender. 
It, it's a situation that someone finds themselves in. You look into history, what you see is that there was no social network for people who were in trouble financially. Right? In the Old Testament, you couldn't go to the bank, get bridge financing. You couldn't even really declare bankruptcy. If your crops failed, if you uh, made a, you know, a bad business decision, you were in trouble, you had really only one uh, option of last resort, and that was to sell yourself into slavery. And in that case, it was not intended to be a permanent situation. Usually, it was about seven years. Seven years, you sell yourself into slavery, earn your freedom back, get your financial house in order, and then, you, and then you would be free. This is the kind of slavery, this more open form of slavery, is what we find predominantly in the New Testament. See, in the New Testament, when Paul is writing to those in the Ephesian church, at that time, historians estimate that there were about 50 to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. That probably one-third of the city of Ephesus were, were slaves. And it was not a class issue. Slaves could be uh, everything from uh, indentured labor to merchants to household managers or doctors. Slaves could own property. They could own possessions. They could even uh, own other, other slaves. So slavery was even a common way for people to gain Roman citizenship. This was highly coveted. And as you gained your slavery after about six or seven years, you would very often receive that. So, so to be clear... This open type of slavery was not approved by God, right? These were still one human being owning another. This wasn't, this wasn't the way that God said that things should be. There were still abuses of power. There were still masters that beat their servants, but it was different than the kind of slavery that we are most uh, familiar with. It's different than the transatlantic slave trade. There's a difference between a plantation slave and someone like Joseph, who managed Potiphar's household. He was a bondservant. He was a slave. But the, the differences are, are, are vast. So we need to keep that in mind when we're looking to the Bible and, and trying to understand the different verses that we find there. So I want to narrow the focus even more, look at the New Testament, and ask the question, what does the New Testament say about slavery in light of the gospel? Is the gospel ringing in your ears? It is in mine. The first thing that we see is this, that um, earthly freedom is not the most important thing. This is the surprising thing that we see time and again in, in the New Testament, that when Paul writes, he, he writes in such a way that you're like, Paul, what, what do you mean? Look at, look at this in 1 Corinthians. Here's chapter 7. He's writing again to, to Christians who are enslaved, some of them. He says, were you a bondservant? Were you a slave when you became a Christian, when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called as a bondservant of Christ, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, uh, there let him remain with God. See, this is, these are some of the language that really confuses people. Right? Because we would never say to someone who is in any form of slavery, uh, can you get free? No, don't worry about it, it's fine. Don't worry, about it. it's okay. We'd never say that because we're, we're mostly thinking of and speaking into a situation of closed slavery where someone is beaten and oppressed, violently abused. And our message to them is we, we need to get you help. We need to get you free. But remember here, Paul is speaking to those who have most likely either sold themselves into slavery or in a difficult situation and, and his word there is, is, if you can get free, you should. 
But, but don't forget, if you're a Christian, you actually have a greater sense of freedom that is already yours in Christ. See, the gospel here really turns things on its head. Like if you think about what he just said in that passage, he said to the slave, right, he says, he says listen, don't worry about it, you're already free. But to the one who's free, he says, don't forget, you're, actually, you're already a bondservant of Christ. You're already a slave to God. See, the gospel opens our eyes to see the bigger realities than the, the ones that tend to occupy our mind and our heart, the socioeconomic realities of life. If, if you were to ask most people, right, think about, in my mind, what does it mean to be free? Usually it has to do with, can I, can I go where I want? Can I do what I want? Can I buy what I want? Right, that, that's freedom, right? And that is a genuine, real sense of freedom. That's a good thing for people to be able to make those choices. But that tends to consume us we tend to think that's the only kind of freedom that really matters. But the Bible goes deeper. The Bible unsettles that sense of freedom by, by communicating the truth that, in fact, every human being, no matter how free we are on earth, at a deeper level, we are all actually in bondage. That we are, we are all serving a master. The question is, is, what kind of master? Let me show you what Paul says in, in the book of Romans chapter 6. He says this, he says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." See what he's saying there to all of humanity. Look, if you're living in sin, you are actually serving sin. You're looking to it to receive blessing, goodness, joy, whatever it is in life. The Bible uh, uses the word idolatry for this, right? We're, we're looking to a lifestyle, to money, to power, to, to the many things that we live for in life, thinking that it's freedom. But what Paul is saying is there's actually a bondage there. You, you are giving yourself over to those things and ultimately they will disappoint you. Ultimately, it says here, if we are, if we are slaves to sin, it's gonna bring us death. But the opposite is not complete freedom from anything. It's actually to be in bondage to Christ because down that road leads life and life eternal. Now, you may, you may think, you may wonder, I, I would like the third option, Matt. Where's the third option where I'm not in bondage to anyone or anything? That, that sounds better. It's not an option, in fact. And here's why. It's not an option unless, unless we are self-created beings, unless we have birthed ourselves into existence, we are always going to be dependent on someone. And we see that in the Bible clearly, but also just looking around us. Every creature is, is a dependent creature. On the world in which we live, the universe in which we live, the Bible just pulls back the veil and says, look, it's God who made you. God who made this world. And so either, either you were living for him or you were going against him. There's only, there's only two options. Now, the real question that the Bible keeps pushing us to then is, is what kind of master is God then? What kind of master is he? If, if we're either going to go for him or against him, we should know what, what's his nature. That's what the Bible is continually pushing humanity to decide. And what we find time and again is that he is a good master. He is a benevolent king. He cares for his creatures. He provides for all that he has created. He promises 
to ultimately judge the world of all evil, including those who enslave others. He loves us in spite of our stiff necks and our hard hearts, and he is concerned for our eternal freedom, not just for our earthly freedom, not our earthly well-being for, for 70 years, 80 years. He, he wants for us to have hope and joy eternal. And so he's, he's, he did what was necessary for us to be freed from our slavery to sin because we couldn't do it on our own. He sent Jesus to pay the penalty, which is death. That the direction we were headed, the right punishment for our sins is death, and yet Jesus took it upon himself on the cross and then still came back to new life, thus breaking the bondage of death for every human being who puts their faith in Jesus. He did that so that we would know real freedom, lasting, eternal freedom, not from any master. We, we, we aren't designed for that, but from the false masters that enslave us. See, despite the abuses of power and, and throughout history, we see many of them. Despite that, there are actually some good masters out there. There's some good kings. There have been some good, not perfect, but good ones in history. And what you find when you come in contact with a, a good master and someone who's serving them is the one who's serving usually does not want to go anywhere. We have a picture of this actually in the Old Testament. It's a fascinating uh, couple of verses. Look, look at this in the book of Exodus. This is again about some of the language and teaching around slavery at the time in that culture. And it says this in verse five. It says, but, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be a slave forever. You see what's going on there? That this is someone who has sold themselves into slavery for economic reasons, whatever the situation is, they're getting near the end. Seven years is almost up. They are going to have the option of going free. But this slave is looking at their options without any master, and then they're looking at the reality of their life with this good and loving master. They're saying, I don't want to go anywhere. I want to stay here. I love my master. He loves me. He cares for my family. I want to willingly pledge myself to this master because I can see there is going to be greater blessing and greater joy here serving this master than me being my own master out in the world. So you can, ima you can imagine going through the marketplace, right, in the ancient world, seeing certain people going about their tasks, they've got a big ring in their ear, and you know they've got a good master. They delight in serving that master because, because they've been blessed and protected. See, this is a, a picture, a foreshadow, way back in the book of Exodus, of the church. If you're a Christian, you serve God willingly and joyfully because, why? Because you've been served, right? Because Jesus has given up everything for you, died in your place on, on the cross. And so, yes, you pledge your life to Jesus. You gladly acknowledge, I am a bondservant of Christ. I am a slave of Christ. Yes, why would I want to be anything different when I've received so much? See, this is why the gospel, um, this is how the gospel shows us a truer experience of freedom. When we, when we submit, that's, that's the, tough, the tough thing, is that from our human earthly minds, we think submission does not equal freedom, and yet in, in the gospel it does. And this is also why the other freedoms of life cease to be the most important thing. That's how Paul can write with integrity and with joy to a, a Christian brother or sister who is enslaved and say, look, if you can get your freedom, great, but if not, don't worry about it. Why? Because you have a greater sense of real freedom. So before we move on, 
these whole ideas, they are pushing us, aren't they? To consider, to consider what the masters are in our life. If you're, if you're a Christian here this morning, you probably can look back and see in that past life the different masters you were serving, hoping that they would bring you benefit and, and joy and peace, whatever it was, and you can probably look back and see how they, how they failed. But it may be that you're, you're not a person of faith yet, and so you're, you're wrestling with that idea. I would, I would challenge you, as the gospel is challenging you, you to really evaluate who it is that you're living for, what it is that you're submitting to, and whether they can actually bring true and lasting joy into your life. That's, that's always the push of the gospel. Not, not to know master, but to a better, to a better master. So the, the second thing that we see from the New Testament, that's the big thing. The next two kind of flow from it. The second thing we see, just in terms of what the Bible is saying about slavery, is this. Uh, God is creating a new society where there will be no slaves. See, the death and resurrection of Jesus put into motion something that is unstoppable, a, a force of renewal in human culture. Look at what it says uh, here in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So th this new creation is, shows us the end goal of Jesus was not just a new religion. He wanted new people, a, a new society. And in fact, that's what he promises, right? In Revelation at the end, the last book, he says, uh, in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. That means that the earth itself will be renewed. Human society, human culture, and in that new culture, all forms of slavery will be abolished. There will be no more slavery at all. In fact, uh, he's very clear about this. Here's Galatians uh, 3.28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, uh, there is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So this is the reality, the new identity of those who follow Jesus. This is new reality for us as individuals and the very thing that will redeem and renew our culture. So, so God is creating society. His goal is that there would be a society where there is no slavery. And the, the third thing that we see in light of the gospel in the New Testament is that Jesus came to bring true freedom. We've seen that already, but, but here's why I think it's important to emphasize this. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever, if you're part of the church, you might have had a conversation with someone who's like, man, I don't know how you believe this book. Look at what the church, you know, the whole history of the church and slavery, or what the Bible says. And sometimes the response from, from Christians is, look, the Bible you know, doesn't agree with slavery and the early church, they wanted, they would have wanted to say, look, you should stop. But the reason that you can't find a verse in the New Testament that says stop enslaving people now, the reason you can't find that is because it would have been such an upheaval. Like slavery was so intertwined with the culture that if they did that, it would have been just economic turmoil for everyone. It would have been devastation. And there's, there's truth in that. It would have been a huge upheaval. People would have been destitute. But if you, if you know Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, that shouldn't sit right with you as the full answer. Because let me ask you this, from what you know of Jesus, has, did he ever seem concerned that his teaching would, be, would bring too much turmoil or too much upheaval? You know what I mean? Did he ever seem worried that he was causing too much change? No, he never worried about that. This was Jesus who flipped over tables in the temple, 
right? Confronted religious leaders. Standing before Pilate, the Roman governor, said, I'm the king, right? Called himself the Messiah, called himself God. He was not ever concerned about causing too much change. In fact, the problem with condemning slavery outright at that time was not that it would have been too radical. The problem is that it would not have been radical enough. The problem is that if the early church had made the abolition of slavery their thing, Christianity would have likely become a movement of social reform rather than spiritual reform. That's how people would have seen it. See, Jesus came not, not just to change social norms, but to change hearts. Because with that heart change, with that gospel change in the heart of every individual came the forgiveness of sins, came that the promise of life forever, came true freedom, and came the seed of renewal for human culture itself. See, the gospel, the gospel doesn't aim high, right? It doesn't, it doesn't go for slavery itself, it goes deeper. The gospel goes for the heart of corruption that enables someone to think that they can own someone else. The gospel doesn't just want to set the slave free. The gospel wants to set the slave owner free so that humanity itself would be redeemed, would be renewed. And this does bring real renewal. Right? The gospel actually does change our hearts today in, in a very different context. Right? It, it brings us to the point of being able to see people as people, not as things to be used. Right? In the church especially, we are to see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Not, not with different classes, different genders. We are to be gracious and kind and, and, and to serve each other in the same way that Christ served us. See, there's nothing, there's nothing soft in the Bible when it comes to slavery. To the closed form of slavery, the Bible is very clear. It's, it's evil, it's wrong, it needs to be eradicated, and the church should and is working to counteract all of the the current forms of modern slavery. That should be on our list of ways that we live out the gospel by putting our energy and effort towards that. But to the open form of slavery in that day, in the New Testament time, the gospel says, the Bible says, look, this too must change. But the gospel must take preeminence. It must be the priority of the church because it is only by the gospel that people will experience true and lasting freedom which is God's heart and should be our heart for the people around us. So that's the two-thirds. That's the big picture, right? In a nutshell, in terms of what, what does the Bible say? What is God saying towards those who are enslaved and those who enslave others? And now in light of that truth, really in light of the, what the gospel says there, we're going to look to First uh, Timothy and see what, what does Paul mean here when he's speaking to these, to these slaves? So that's the third question. Uh, what do Paul's instructions mean? First Timothy 6, 1 and 2. Uh, verse 1, we'll take them each uh, one at a time. It says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. See, here you have to picture the Ephesian church. There's slaves and slave owners all sitting together. One group of people were Christian slaves who had masters who were unbelievers, not part of the church. And what Paul is highlighting here is that there was a temptation for that Christian slave to hear all of the wonderful truths of the gospel we just finished talking about and thinking, I'm free. I'm a free man in Christ. Why am I listening to this guy? Right? I'm not going to work for him anymore. I'm going to act like a completely freed man. And, and Paul reminds him, yes, you are free in Christ, but listen, you're still a bondservant. 
You still sold yourself into slavery, whatever the situation may be. You can't just walk away from that. See, the, the problem is that they were giving the gospel a bad name. Imagine, again, someone outside the church, a slave owner, master of a house, whatever, and one of, the, one of his slaves used to be a good worker. Now, this slave came to Christ, and they're, they're lazy, that they're slacking off, they're not showing respect, and in his mind, the connection he makes is, man, I hope that none of my other slaves, no one I know comes to Christ, because this is what happens. They're all of a sudden people of bad character. Paul is saying that through your actions, you, you are leading people to revile, right, to curse the name of God. You're giving the gospel a bad name. Notice, notice Paul's focus. Right? He's not chiefly concerned with that slave in their earthly situation. He knows they've got a grander hope. He's saying you should be thinking about what your life says about the gospel. Verse 2 is, is very similar. Verse 2 says, Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved teach and urge these things. So the difference here is that instead of an unbelieving master, now there's a Christian master. So now, imagine the tension in the church, like on a Sunday morning, uh, you're a slave and your master, you're both part of the church, and there's now some tension. The temptation for that slave then is to be disrespectful, right? To think, well, we're, we're brothers and we're sisters in Christ, right? I don't have to work as hard. I don't have to serve as hard. This is a temptation sometimes within the church. This is a temptation today, this kind of dynamic for us to, to hear that the realities that we are equal right, in the gospel, equal in Christ, and then forget that there are certain roles that we play uh, on earth. As an example, uh, I have a friend who back in the day uh, ran a, a painting company, a lot of young guys working for him, and uh, some of them are Christians. They knew that he was a Christian. He said they would drive him crazy because they would always ask for time off. And they would use the church as an excuse. They'd say, uh, you know what? There's a young adults event. Could we get off a little early? You know how it is, right? In the church. Or they'd say, they're, they're going on a retreat this weekend. Could we get a few extra vacation days? And he would say, no, you've, you've got a job. Work your job, right? Don't use the, the church as an excuse. Don't use the fact that we're brothers in, in Christ to, to try to take advantage. Another uh, story I heard was from a manager who had uh, two theological students working for him, and uh, they would drive him crazy because they would always just stand around and talk about God instead of doing their job. And he said one time, one of them, he saw him uh, go into the bathroom. He was there for 20 minutes. He came out, and uh, as he was passing by his, his friend, uh, his cubicle, he whispered to him, man, it was so great. I just read three chapters of John. It was a great time with the Lord. And the boss was like, what are you doing? Think about that. He's in the John, reading the book of John, Right? <laughs> He's doing it on company time. You see the problem, right? Is the Bible more important than any job we have? Absolutely. But should we, should we use it as an excuse to shirk our duties, to not work hard? No, not at all. Why? Because the way that we live is a testimony to the gospel. It points back that way all the time. And so if we're, if we're slacking off, if we're not working hard, then we are giving the gospel a bad name. It should be the reverse, it should be as it is. I've heard stories uh, in some of the factories in China that where some of the workers come to faith, their, their factory owners, they all of a sudden start having gospel meetings because these new workers who come to Christ are such, they're better workers. They're more loyal. They care about things more. They are a good testimony to what it means to follow Christ, that we are people of integrity, 
that we're working to honor the Lord, that we pursue excellence. Paul's trying to make the connection for these bondservants. He's saying, look, the way that you serve, what you should be showing the people around you, even your, even your slave masters, is that the heart of the gospel is one of service. In fact, what, in fact, what this says and what the New Testament says is that all of our lives, every part of it has a missional dimension where people are looking to it and trying to understand what it is that we believe. It, here's, this is stated really clearly in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Peter says to Christians, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the, the non-believers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there he's saying, even in a situation where someone is persecuting you, speaking against you, your goal is not for self-preservation. Your goal would be that they would see your good deeds, see your integrity, so that those unbelievers, those people who don't know the Lord would say, I don't know what it is about those Christians, but, but man, I want to know more. I honor their God because of the way that they behave. See, this is Paul's overarching concern. For all of his instructions in the New Testament, here we see it especially, his concern is the glory of God and that the life-saving message of the gospel would be revealed in the lives of people who say they believe the gospel so that others would believe. There are higher goals. His, his goals are higher than simply our earthly freedom because he knows already we have a greater freedom in Christ. I want to leave you with a with I think something would help to see this. Because really what we're talking about here is an issue of perspective, right? Certain things are more important than others. And so there's a commercial on the radio that I've been hearing. Uh, you may have heard it. It's from the uh, Canadian Cancer Society. And the, the commercial is, basically starts with a guy who's, who's listing off all of the challenges as a cancer patient. He's talking about uh, the pain that he has, uh, the, the chemotherapy, the scarring, uh, the, the hair loss, the nausea, he's kind of going through all these things. And then he says, but, but then, but then I heard the two words that would change my life. And you expect him to say those two words are, you're cancer free or, or you're healed or something like that. But actually what he says is those two words are, I do. And you realize he's, he's talking about getting married. He's talking about getting married in spite of the cancer treatments that he's going through. And the tagline for the ad campaign is, is this. There's an, a print version of it. Life is bigger than cancer. But the whole idea here is that the, the Canadian Cancer Society, they know that the struggle for someone going through cancer is that, that you see that as it, it defines you now. That it is who you are. And they're saying, no, there's still a life to be lived. It's an issue of perspective. Life actually is bigger than the cancer that is that is harming you, that is causing you all this turmoil. And what Paul is saying is, I think, the very same thing. Except what he's saying is this. Look, to slaves, the gospel is bigger than your slavery. The gospel is bigger because it brings a greater freedom, a greater comfort, a greater hope, and because it informs and even redeems the slavery that you are a part of because you have an opportunity to bring the life-saving message of the gospel even to the person who is who's over you. See, this is, this is the amazing thing about the gospel. This is why everything in the Bible, everything in our lives, it needs to be seen through it. Because it does transform the way that we see every situation of our life, even, even the most difficult situations we can imagine, like, like slavery. Now, in terms of an application for us, right, we should always be asking, what does the Bible say? And then what does it mean for us? In our day, I would think 
that there are not uh, any slaves or slave owners probably in this room, probably in our church. So does it have application for us? It does, in fact. Because the principle of what Paul is, is saying is, is this. Look, there are going to be situations you were in where you were taken advantage of. Probably some of us have joked about being slaves in our work, right? Being in some situation where the boss is horrible, where we're, we're being put down, we're being taken advantage of, and we have felt enslaved. In, in this is speaking to you in that situation. And, and the advice, the, the instruction is, is very fitting. What does Paul say to us in those situations where we're being taken advantage of? He says, can you get your freedom? Can you get a new job? Can you get into another class or whatever it is where someone over you is being uh, abusive or oppressive? Then you should do that. But if you can't, it's okay. You have a greater hope. You have a greater freedom. You have a greater comfort. You can actually find the strength and the grace to continue living in that difficult situation because of what you know about Christ. And by the same token, he's saying to those of us who are tempted to use people rather than seeing them as actual people, those of us who are tempted to, to abuse our power, to not literally enslave someone, but to, to keep them down, again, the gospel is confronting us in our sin, saying, is, is that the way you're going to treat someone whom God has created? See, see this, this somewhat confusing word to a society far different than us still is God speaking to us today because it still points back to the same hope that those people had, those believers, brothers and sisters in Christ here today. The same thing for us. And my hope for us is that if you're part of the church, you would, you would recognize this greater freedom that you have and that if you're not part of the church, you, you would really question the freedom that you think you have and see the greater source of it in Christ. So let me pray to us to that end. Lord, I, I do pray for us. I pray for us, Lord, the church gathered here, guests gathered here. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to see uh, the situation that we are in in light of your love for us through the gospel. Lord, I pray for those that are in difficult situations. Lord, situations that where they're being taken advantage of, where it's not, it's not right, Lord, Things should change. I pray, Lord, that you would provide an avenue of escape, of change. I pray even, Lord, for those in the world that are, are literally enslaved, Lord. We pray, God, for their release. We pray, God, that the church and other agencies that are working to end sex trafficking, to end child trafficking, to end all those instances where, where someone is using their power to enslave another person, we pray that would stop. But God, even more than that, we pray that in every, all of those situations that that people would know the freedom that comes through Christ. That, Lord, even in whatever situation we're in, however difficult, we can have a hope that informs and transforms us. And, Lord, you, you can use us even in the most difficult situations to magnify your name. I pray that would happen too, Lord. I pray, God, you would give us soft hearts for the people around us. And, Lord, that through that, you, you would be honored. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you that it is clear. I pray, Lord, you would help us as a church to, be, to communicate the clarity and hope of Scripture on this topic and on others. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.